All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very formal welcome to Curious Tales of the Talmud number two. The adventure continues. This is our exploration of Curious Tales of the Talmud, the most bizarre, puzzling, enigmatic, mysterious, bizarre stories of the Talmud, making sense of them through classic uh, commentaries as well as some Jewish mystical perspective. So the goal here is to take a story, read the story, kind of point out how maybe it's not so understood, how bizarre it is, or the questions that we might have in the story, and then proceed to develop deeper ideas to piece the story back together again and to walk away with a lesson that resonates for you and I in the here and now. So that's what we're going to do tonight. So tonight, we have a powerful lesson with a powerful story. It's our third and final session of Curious Tales of the Talmud 2, which actually represents six in total, if you consider the original Curious Tales of the Talmud, number one. So this will be our final session. And we're going to be focusing on a story that takes place in one of the most difficult time periods in Jewish history. Jewish history has had its fair share of difficult time periods, but this one in particular was very difficult, very... Um, very painful for the, Jew, for, for the Jews, for Judaism. Um, the story also foretells one of the most frightening episodes and heart-wrenching accounts in Jewish history, which is the, the, the horrific, brutal murder and the martyrdom of Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan, which we're, we're going to get into in depth um, shortly. We'll be presenting... A very strange tale of a question that was asked at a deathbed and perhaps the even stranger answer that was given on that same deathbed. And this will give us a perspective on what it means to live a virtuous life from a Jewish perspective. As we do always, we're going to ask questions on the story and then piece it back together again in a powerful new way. And in the process, we're going to learn lessons, Jewish lessons, about what it means to grow as a human being, personal growth, change, and character development from a Jewish perspective. So let's begin, buckle up, let's get rolling. So what time period, what era does this story take place? The story takes place, as I said a moment ago, in a very dark period of Jewish history, several decades after the great oven debacle, the great oven debate that we talked about last week, and a few years after the Athenian debate that we focused on two weeks ago. So again, I, I, uh, I'm, we're pulling on memory now. Two weeks ago, we spoke about the great debate, right? The great debate between the rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua, and the Athenian scholars, the Athenian, the, the, the elders of Athens. Last week, we learned a debate about, between two rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, about an oven. Okay, fine. So we had a story about uh, um, a debate between a Jewish scholar and, and Greek philosophers, and then a debate between two Jewish scholars. Well, this story takes place after both of those episodes. You might have recalled a few weeks ago I mentioned that there was a king, a Roman emperor, whose name was Hadrian who began as a friend of the Jews, but 
toward the end of his reign, became a fierce hater of the Jews. He famously crushed the, uh, the, the, the Bar Kokhba revolt and just was absolutely horrific to the Jewish people. He, in fact, he enacted many, many cruel and harsh laws banning Jewish practice. So, for example, in his time, again, toward the end of his rule, he, he issued edicts forbidding circumcision, the observance of Shabbos, the eating of matzah on Passover, putting up a sukkah on the, on the festival of Sukkot, wrapping tefillin, saying the Shema, go, building and going to a mikvah, celebrating Hanukkah, and also granting and receiving smicha rabbinic ordination. These were practices, basic fundamental Jewish practices that were, for, that were forbidden, that were made to be illegal by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. He was a very, very uh, um, cruel hater of the Jewish people. Didn't start off that way, but became a very big hater of the Jewish people. But most importantly to our story tonight, Hadrian forbade the study and the teaching of Torah. He famously banned any public teaching or studying of Torah. If you did it in the privacy of your home and you didn't get caught, that's one thing. But any formal Torah teaching would be off limits. So just to give you a little context, if Hadrian was around and he got wind of this, of this Zoom session that we're having right now, studying Talmud, studying Curious Tales of the Talmud, he would not be very happy, especially because we're speaking not so nicely about him. So the punishment for violating these, these edicts were torture, death, or both. So it was definitely a very difficult time. Rabbi, and, excuse me? Yes. Can you give some background on how this all developed? What, where were they and what was the change and what was happening, you know, in the global... Yeah, I mean, this is taking place in the, se in, in the second century of the Common Era. So the temple was destroyed in the year 69. We're now in the 100s. Um, Hadrian uh, rises to power. At the beginning, he befriends the Jews. And then at some point, he, he, he turns. Why does he turn? Look, I can give you the, uh, the reason that historians give, and that is because the Jews revolted against Rome. The Jews revolted against Rome, and he said, you, re you're revolting against me? You're finished. That's it. No more, no more Mr. Nice Guy. We're done. Did he turn sour otherwise with other factors? Sure. Is it discussed? Yeah, but that's the basic reason. That's the basic reason. The Jews wanted to regain Israel. They wanted to regain sovereignty and not be under Roman rule. This is after the destruction of the Second Temple. They wanted to push back. That's hence the Bar Kokhba revolt. Bar Kokhba was a was a was a, a leader and a scholar who many thought was the Mashiach, fighting the, the final war, the Messianic War. Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva, famously believed that this fellow Bar Kokhba was indeed the Messiah or the potential Messiah. Didn't work out. The whole revolt got crushed. So many people, countless people lost their lives. Jews lost their lives. Um, yeah, so it, it, the easiest explanation is it's in the context of a Jewish revolt that the Roman emperor says, we're no longer friends. Yeah, and that was it. After the, after the, Jews were, after the revolt was crushed, Rome came down with decrees that they had never come down before, even when they destroyed the temple. When they destroyed the temple, that's it. They thought, look, we'll destroy the temple, Exile, you know, kick you out, uh, leave a little bit of a place. But, but that, that, sh that should quiet, you know, Jews and Judaism. Well, they revolted. Boom. Crush.
So the story that we're going to read tonight and explore tonight takes place at that time. The time of very serious oppression and, and uh, very serious um, decrees against Jews and Judaism. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's read the story together. Text number one, this comes from the Talmud Tractate Avodazar. The main character of our story tonight, as I mentioned before, is Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan. That's his name. I just highlighted it for you. Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan. So here's the story. Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan paid a visit to Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, who had fallen ill and was lying on his deathbed. Again, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma was the rabbi who had fallen ill and was lying on his deathbed. It's Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan who goes and visits him. Rabbi Yossi, the man who is not well, said to Rabbi Hanina, the visitor, Hanina, my brother, do you not know that by heavenly decree the Romans rule the land? They have destroyed God's house, burned his sanctuary, killed his pious ones, and wiped out his most noble ones, and their regime is still at the height of power. Yet I hear that you still study Torah, and furthermore, you convene public gatherings in which you flout the regime and teach Torah to the masses with a Torah scroll sitting in your lap. So I hope you appreciate what's going on here. One rabbi visits another rabbi who's not, who's not feeling well. Well, that's an understatement. He's ill and lying on his deathbed. And the rabbi who's lying on his deathbed is chastising the visiting rabbi, he says, Rabbi Hanina, or Hanina, my brother. You think it's the Romans? It's divine decree that we're in Gaulus, that we're in exile. By divine decree, heavenly decree, the Romans are ruling the land. And they're still in power. And yet I'm hearing that you're publicly flouting, disregarding, publicly dismissing the Roman edicts not to study Torah in public. Not to teach Torah in public. And you're doing it in public with a Torah scroll sitting in your lap. The story continues. Heaven will have mercy upon me, Rabbi Hanina replied. He said, Hashem will help. I'm telling you something sensible, Rabbi Yossi pleaded. And you reply that heaven will have mercy? Why, I would be amazed if the Romans do not burn you together with the Torah scroll. Rabbi Hanina then asked, Master, how do I stand with regard to the world to come? You know, you're, uh, you're a, a, um, an elder teacher on your deathbed. Tell me, how do I look? How do I look on the other side? How do I look vis-a-vis -vis the world to come? Is it looking good? Rabbi Yossi answered, have you performed any, any worthy deeds? Rabbi Hanina said, I once, listen to this, listen to this reply. I once inadvertently switched money purses and distributed charity, tzedakah, from the purse that I had designated for my Purim meal instead of the charity purse. I'm going to explain this in a moment. I did not, I did not then seek reimbursement from the charity purse. Rather, I, dis I dispersed its contents to charity too. If that is indeed so, Rabbi Yossi exclaimed, may your portion be my portion, 
May your lot be my lot. Oh, I envy you. I wish that I would have the type of reward, spiritual reward that awaits you. I wish I had that same reward. That's how the story ends. If you're confused as to what's going on in the story, that's the point. The, le- the name of this course is called Curious Tales of the Talmud, and we're presenting stories that do not make so much sense at face value. The goal of this, of this course, the goal of tonight's lesson, is to break down the story, analyze the story, and put it back together again in a completely new way. But first, let's go through it piece by piece one more time. Again, we have two rabbis, Rabbi Chanina and Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Chanina is visiting Rabbi Yossi. And when he visits him, Rabbi Yossi has some choice words. Essentially saying, why are you still teaching Torah publicly? And Rabbi Chanina defends himself by saying, Hashem will provide, Hashem will, Hashem will bring me mercy. It reminds me of the story. Reminds me of the story. Um, that there's a young man and a young woman who are dating and they fall in love. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful match. But of course, it comes time at some point for the young man to meet his beloved's parents. Right? He's getting serious with her. Now it's time to meet the parents. So, he meets the parents. I'm sorry, they're already engaged. Are they engaged? Uh, Maybe they're not yet engaged. Okay, they're not yet engaged. He meets meets her dad. He goes over to her parents' house, and the father says, come, I want to have a schmooze with you. I want to speak with you. Okay? So the the father, her father asks this young man, says, tell me, tell me, I know that you're a yeshiva student, you study a lot of Torah, but tell me, if, if this were to get serious and you were to marry my daughter, yeah, what would you do for a living? The young man says, God will provide. God will provide, okay. Tell me, tell me, what's your plan for buying a house? God will provide. And for uh, paying for the education of your children? God will provide. Every question, God will provide. All right, nope. Finishes the meeting, walks out. He turns to his wife, the, the, the mother of the, of the young lady. And his wife says, no, how, how, how was the meeting? What do you think about this guy? He says, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm split a little bit. Like he, he seems to not have exactly a plan. But the good news is, the good news is, he refers to me as God. Anyway, that's the joke. Yeah, you know this one? Okay, God will provide, etc. Okay, so here's the point. So what happens? Rabbi Yossi says, Hanina, what are you doing? You're teaching Torah publicly. Don't you know it's illegal? You're going to get killed. And, and Rabbi Hanina in charge and says, yeah, God, God, will, God will help. And Rabbi Yossi says, I'm speaking to you sensibly. I'm trying to have a logical conversation with you a rational conversation, and you're telling me heaven will provide. Who's talking about miracles now? Right? Why, why, are you, why are you evoking miracles? Right? I'm telling you something sensible. And you reply, heaven will have mercy. Right? And then he says, I would be amazed if the Romans do not burn you together with the Torah scroll. By the way, this horrifically foreshadows exactly the way that Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan was executed by the Romans, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, the end of the story is that's exactly how he died or how he was killed. 
But again, we'll get there in a moment. But then the story switches. Instead of putting Rabbi Hanina in the hot seat, why are you still teaching Torah? Rabbi Hanina then asks a question. He says, Rebbe, master, teacher, Rabbi Yossi, how do I, how do I look for the world to come? Is my spiritual reward look, looking good? He says, so what have you done? Any, any good deeds that you have? Yeah. Let me, let me explain this story. Basically, Rabbi Hanina was in charge of the tzedakah fund. He was in charge of the charity fund. So what he did was he had two wallets. He had a wallet that was a personal wallet, and he had a wallet that was for the charity funds. Well, one time, one time it was Purim, the holiday of Purim, and he, he collected money to distribute to tzedakah. And what happened was he by accident distributed it out of his own wallet. So now, like, whoops, he gave away the money from his own wallet, and he has the charity wallet. It was supposed to come from the charity wallet. So what did he do? He didn't reimburse himself from the charity wallet. Are you with me on this? He didn't reimburse himself. He gave the charity wallet, all the money in there, to charity. His own money that he gave inadvertently because he thought it was the charity wallet, he left. It to, I mean, he didn't take it back. And he gave tzedakah twice to his own detriment. Why? The commentaries explain because he didn't, want it, he didn't want it to seem like he's pulling money out of tzedakah. He's pulling money out of charity, right? The charity was given for charity. He's not going to touch that. That's for tzedakah. His own personal is his own personal. So he didn't touch it. Ah, Rabbi Yossi says, oh, you did that mitzvah? You gave tzedakah out of your own money and then you didn't reimburse yourself? You did that? Oh, I wish I had. I wish I had your reward. That's the story. That's the story. Okay, so let's talk about the history. Let's talk about the history. Or what happens next? Yeah, Paul Harvey, right? The rest of the story. What's the rest of the story? You guys remember Paul Harvey? Yeah, Paul Harvey? Yeah, okay. Paul Harvey. What's the next, what's the rest of the story? Shortly thereafter, Rabbi Yossi passes away. And shortly thereafter, Rabbi Hanina is arrested by the Romans for teaching Torah publicly. And what happens? He's tortured and murdered by the Romans, by the Roman Empire, by the Roman Emperor. How was he murdered? How was he tortured? They wrapped his body in a Torah scroll. They lit it on fire. And according to the, to, to the way the story is told, they put wool, wool over his heart so that he wouldn't die immediately so as to prolong his suffering. And famously, famously, as he was burning alive, being burnt alive, his students asked him, Rebbe, what do you see? And he answered, I see that the parchment is burning, but the letters are soaring above. They're burning the Torah scroll, but it's only the parchment that's burning, but the letters, the letters are soaring above. And with this, with these words, Rabbi Chenina ben Trajan captures what has kept us alive throughout the millennia. Despite all the suffering we've experienced, the spirit, the body of Judaism may be compromised perhaps. The body, thank you for clarifying, they wet the wool first. Yes, thank you for clarifying. Yes, they wet the wool first so as to the, so that the flames could not hit. Correct, yes. So this reflects a, a powerful, the powerful theme of Jewish survival. 
the parchment may burn. The bodies may be burned. And throughout history, Jewish bodies have been burned by those who are evil and, and, and wish harm against the Jewish people. But the letters soar above. The spirit, the spirit remains. The spirit is eternal. Am Yisrael Chai. We're still here today studying the story of Rebbe Chinin and Ben Shraj. So that was, that's a parenthetical idea on the story, but that's the postscript. The postscript is, he was tortured and murdered for teaching Torah publicly in exactly the way that Rabbi Yossi had exclaimed, you know, I would be surprised if they didn't. That's exactly how he was killed. You know, there's an expression, don't, uh, don't open your mouth to, the, uh, to Satan. Indeed, that, this is what happens that... Uh, the, um, the, the method, of, the method of, uh, of, of killing and torture was exactly that method. By the way, twice a year, twice a year, we publicly read this story of the, the, the torture of Rabbi Chinev and Trajan as part of the account of the ten martyrs, the ten great Jewish righteous uh, um, scholars of that era who were tortured and murdered by the Roman emperor. The, 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 the ten are mentioned, are read, we read the stories, including this one about the Torah scroll, on Yom Kippur and on Tisha B'Av, the two major fast days on the Jewish calendar. That's all, again, parenthetical as a postscript for what happens after this piece of the narrative. But what I want to do is focus on not the conversation about should you trust in God even while doing something reckless, but it's for a good cause, or should you not do the thing that's a little reckless even though you have good intentions? I don't want to focus on that debate. That's maybe for another time. Like, should he have taught Torah publicly in defiance of the Roman decree or not? We're going to save that for another conversation, for another night. I want to focus on where the conversation goes. Because it starts off, again, pointing at Rebbe Chinina. Come on, why are you still... And then Rabbi Chinin asks, how do I look spiritually? Am I okay? And on this piece of the narrative, I have five questions. Five questions. Question number one. Why is Rabbi Chinina asking about his standing for reward in the world to come? Like, how, you know, how does it look? Does it look good? Am I okay? Right? Doesn't he recognize his dedication to Torah? I mean, think about it, right? Think about it. Here he is, day in, day out, publicly defying the Roman decree against teaching Torah to others because he's dedicated to Torah. So what's he doing? He's asking, do I have a share in the world to come? Rabbi, are you kidding me? Who else is putting their life on the line for Torah? Like if anybody should get a share in the world to come, it's you. So what kind of question is that? Does my question make sense? Do you understand my question? It's such a Jewish question. I'm questioning his question. That's a Jewish question, right? He asked the question, how do I look? And I'm asking, you don't know how you look? You look amazing. You look great. You look beautiful. You're teaching Torah public and defines it. You gave up your life to teach God's Torah. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. Now, Rabbi Yossi said it's reckless. I know. But, but, but it's still a big merit. So what's he asking? Why the question? That's question number one. Question number two is on Rabbi Yossi. When Rabbi Yossi hears the question, why doesn't he answer, uh, we just talked about your self-sacrifice for Torah. I think you're okay. He doesn't, right? Why doesn't the other rabbi cut him off and say, what are you doing? What kind of question are you asking? So again, question number one is on Rabbi Hanina for asking the question. Question number two is on Rabbi Yossi for not immediately saying, 
What kind of question is this? This is a silly question. Of course, you have a, an incredible share in the world to come. Of course, you have incredible reward because of your dedication to Torah. Why doesn't he cut him off immediately? Instead, instead, what does he say? He says, do you have any good deeds, perchance? Have you done anything good lately? Have you done anything good lately? Yeah, like teaching Torah today with a public, with a Torah scroll on my lap. But no, he's asking, have you, have you, have you any good deeds? Okay. So again, that's question number two. Question number one is, why is Rabbi Kinnan asking? Doesn't he know about his own you know, righteousness? Rabbi Yossi, number two, Rabbi Yossi, why doesn't he say, you're, you're fine? Instead, he says, actually tell me, what, any, any good mitzvahs that you've done lately? Why, why even ask that? Question number three. What's the answer? What's Rebbe Chinin's response? One time, I had two wallets, one of my own, one of the Purim Tzedakah Fund, and I gave the charity out of my own pocket, but I didn't reimburse some obscure money mix-up and the fact that he just said, you know what, it'll go to charity also. That's what he comes up with. Rabbi Chinina doesn't have any other mitzvahs that he can, that he can uh, talk about, that he can flaunt. Just this one strange, I don't know, strange, whatever, this one unique mitzvah of the Purim tzedakah money. Uh, Mix-up. What, what, what a weird, like it's a strange, it's a pretty strange mitzvah. You would think he would have, you know, bigger and better mitzvot up, or, up, up his sleeve. He was Rabbi Chanina ben Trajan. He was a great rabbi. This is, this is it? This is like the greatest mitzvah he ever did? Is that he, he gave money from his own pocket thinking it was the charity and, and, and he didn't take it back? That's the biggest mitzvah? What's going on here? And of all the mitzvot that he could choose to talk about himself, this is the one that he, cho- that he chooses? Why? Question number four. Why is Rabbi Yose? the other guy, the other rabbi, why is he so impressed with this story that he says, oh, oh my gosh, may your portion be my portion, may your lot be my lot, oh, I wish, I wish I had done that. What's the big deal? What's the, like, why is he so impressed with this uh, money mix-up? And finally, no, I think I actually asked all five questions, but I, I combined two and three. Okay, so let's, let's rewind. Yeah, I think we have all five questions, but uh, I'll, I'll be more precise now in the review. Question number one, why is Rebbe Hanina asking about his share in the world to come? About it, it, does he deserve it? Doesn't he know of his own righteousness? He's teaching Torah and putting his own life at risk. He, he seems to be self-aware of the fact that he's uh, you know, doing something pretty holy. That's number one. Number two, why doesn't Rebbe Yossi cut him off right away and say, Obviously, you have a share in the world to come. Look what you're doing. Third of all, why does he ask him the question, what mitzvah do you have up your sleeve? Right? What does that mean? What mitzvah do you have? He knows what mitzvah he has. He's teaching Torah publicly. Number four, what kind of answer does Rabbi Chinina give about this strange tale of the Purim money mix-up? Why is that the mitzvah that he chooses to relate about himself? Number five, why is Rabbi Yossi so impressed that he exclaims, ah, May your portion be my portion. May your lot be my lot. What's, what's so impressive about that story? Okay, let me check in with you guys. I've done a lot of talking so far. Does that make sense? Yes? The story and the questions? Okay, let me ask you. Have it, let's, 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 uh, let's take a moment here. Uh, feel free to unmute and jump in. Any questions 
comments or clarifications on anything that we've discussed up until now about this story. Jump in. It was just very beautiful that the letters, the Hebrew letters were uh, ascending to this. And in his last moments, he was inspiring fellow Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's very powerful. And it's inspired. It's an artwork. I've seen it depicted in artwork. It's the idea that the spirit, you can't, you can't physically destroy spirit. It doesn't, it's not, it's, it's physical, can harm physical, but it can't harm the spirit. It's like you, centuries later, the previous Chabad Rebbe, back in Russia, when they were arresting him, the KGB was arresting him for teaching Torah publicly, etc. Like similar, right? And he was at the train station in Moscow. And he gave a quick fabrengen. He gave a, gave a quick inspirational talk, being hauled away. And he said, they may imprison our bodies, but they will never imprison our souls. That was his like words. And then they hauled him off onto the train. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's what's kept us going. These types of, this feeling. Fred. Sometimes you're so meticulous in your observance that the smallest mitzvah can be the biggest. Oh, I like it. I like it. You're saying that maybe it seems small, but... There's a, there's a precision, there's a meticulous idea here that this small mitzvah represents something, but good, 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 good. You have to figure out what that is, though. Good, excellent. What else? Questions, comments, clarifications on the story thus far? Yeah, Jules. Well, um, okay, I'm not sure which question I'm answering, but um, I think according to Hillel, the highest form of charity is to give um, unasked and, uh, um, and to people you don't know and that's in essence what he did when he turned over um, his lunch money or whatever the second, you know, his personal money into the tzedakah pile when he, once he realized that he, you know, had mixed up the two. Good. So you're saying, yeah, good, good, good. So there's a, the element of anonymity over there. Like he was unaware. It was like kind of mistaken, but that's kind of like the highest level, one of the highest levels of tzedakah giving. Good, good, beautiful. Right. right. And also, um, um, this was like an intimate act between him and God. He didn't do this for public approval right. or, in front of, or in front of his peers. He did this because internally he knew this was the right thing to do. Good, good. I like what you're saying. In other words, he could have very easily just quickly like corrected it. No one would have ever known. You know, it wasn't like it was, he could have just, just redirected funds and whatever. It wouldn't have been a big deal. But for him, there was that integrity. Good, good. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna look at this in a bit of a different way tonight, but this is very good. Yeah, Howard. Is it possible that the rabbi, with the exclamation about how he wishes that he had the other's position, was being sarcastic and maybe trying to get through to him with it? With could be. With could. A sarcastic or clearly sarcastic. Right. It could be. It could be. The way, the way most commentaries are reading it, though, is that he was genuinely impressed with what this rabbi had said that he had done. So I, let, we're going to operate on that approach. You could say. You could say. But we're going to operate on the approach that he meant it, uh, that he meant it genuinely. And yeah. like I said before, you know, and, and as we've done throughout this, uh, this course, Curious Tales of the Talmud, there are different ways to learn the Talmud and the stories of the Talmud. And we're taking a much deeper look. We're taking a much deeper view. 
um, that touches on Kabbalah, Hasidic philosophy, philosophy, psychology, right? Spiritual psychology. So that's what we're going to do now. In order to understand this story, really understand the story, we're going to speak about a seemingly unrelated topic, which is personal growth and development. Personal growth and development. I think I mentioned, it might have been last night, at our Wednesday Torah class, the idea of self-help. Everyone's into self-help. Ah, people love self-help books. They love self-help seminars. They love self-help videos. They love self-help anything, right? Everyone loves, people are looking to improve. And indeed, you think about New Year's resolutions. We just, we're in the new Jewish year, so we just had an opportunity to make some good Jewish New, year resol- new Year's resolutions. But of course, as we head to the end of the secular year as well, January, January is going to come around, January 1st, New Year's Day, and oftentimes people take resolutions, good, good New Year's resolutions. Right? This year, it's going to be a year of whatever. And the reality is that although we have very good intentions, it's very difficult to actually change. It's very difficult to implement change. We all have great ideas and grand ambitions about things we could be doing better, things that we might stop doing, things that we should start doing. But to actually do them or not do them, that's where it gets a little bit difficult. To implement change is one of the hardest things. Why? So I'll share with you a psychological insight. I'm going to share my screen. Let's do text number three. Um, We're going to skip text number two for a moment. Let's do text number three. Here we go. The brain, this is from a psychologist, Nicholas Westerhoff. The brain is always trying to automate things and create habits, which it imbues with feelings of pleasure. That's a very important line. In other words, there's a sense of pleasure that derives simply from the familiar, based on the fact that it is familiar. It's very powerful. Holding to the tried and true gives us a feeling of security, safety, and competence, while at the same time reducing our fear of the future and of failure, writes brain researcher uh, Gerhard Roth, Gerhard, Gerhard Roth of the University of Bremen in Germany in his 2007 book, whose title translates as Personality, Decision, and Behavior. Personality traits change more during young adulthood than any other period of life, according to psychologist Brent Roberts of the University of Illinois, who together with two colleagues analyzed 92 studies of personality development. They concluded that some personality changes occur well past the age of 30, but that typically these changes are small in magnitude compared with the changes that occur between the ages of 20 and 40. I believe that should be 20 and 30. I think that's a typo. Anyway, the point is like this. We typically are more inclined to change when we're younger. As we get older, the older we get, the harder it is to change. And it's not just because we become stubborn. No, it's much deeper than that. It's because the brain translates patterns and things that are familiar as being good and beneficial. Safe, comfortable, familiar, right? Not risky, not, uh, you know, not shaky. That is translated as pleasure to the brain. 
So, and, and that means something kind of crazy, that sometimes we'd rather have what we have, even though it's not great, than having something new, even though it would be pretty awesome. It's very possible that we might prefer the old, not so great, just because we know it. We know it, and that's it. It's like that old car that you love. Yeah, it doesn't work so well, but it's my, you know, it's the one that I drive. Maybe that's not a good example. Whatever, for you, I'm sure something relates, you know, you can relate to something like that in your life. Okay. It's that old sweater. Yeah, sure you can get rid of it. Yeah, but it's comfortable. You're, you're used to it. Yeah, but you know they've, they've developed fabric technology in the last 30 years. It's, things are more comfortable nowadays. I'm saying theoretically. Yeah, but it's, but, uh, but, I'm familiar. If I go out to the store and buy a new one, who knows what's going to happen? This is, again, I'm giving silly examples, but only in order to just kind of emphasize this idea that I'm hoping we can all relate to. I think we can all relate to. Things that are familiar feel good just because they're familiar. Irrespective of whether they're good or not, it feels good. And And that serves as a as a barrier to change. That serves as an impediment to actual change because when faced with the choice to stay where we are or to radically change, to to disrupt something, especially the older we get, the more likely we are to say, nah, just keep it going. (laughs) We're okay. Now, so how do we get past this? Is there some Jewish advice? Some Jewish, uh, you know, um, encouragement, some Jewish inspiration to change? You know, to, uh, to letting go of the status quo? Indeed there is. But to understand this, I want to look at something else, another topic. So just to, I, I want to make sure that you're with me in our stops on this journey. They're all going to be connected, you'll see. But just so you know, we started off with the story of Rabbi Chinina and Rabbi Yossi, right? Okay. Then we went to a discussion, a quick discussion about personal development and change and how the familiar... And it is the greatest obstacle to change. And now we're going to talk about our third topic. And that is the exodus. The exodus is one of the most talked about themes discussed in Judaism. Think about it. Everywhere you look, there's the exodus. We're mentioning the exodus, remembering the exodus, reenacting the exodus. Exodus, exodus, exodus. Marsha, 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 right? It's like Exodus everywhere you go. There's Exodus Ahin, Exodus Aher, yeah? Everywhere you turn, we're talking about the Exodus. Dozens of times the Torah makes references to the Exodus. God introduces himself to us at Sinai as the one who took you out of Egypt, the one who made the Exodus happen. We have Passover, one of the most famous and most beautiful and celebrated holidays all about the Exodus. We recite the Shema twice a day, morning and night. And what's in the Shema? We talk about the Exodus. At the conclusion of our morning prayers, we say the six remembrances, which includes a mention of, you guessed it, the Exodus. When we recite Kiddush on Friday night, right? we mention to remember the Exodus. We recall the Exodus when we recite Kiddush. No matter where you look or what you're doing Jewishly, you're bound to bump in 
to the Exodus. So here's my question. And imagine Jerry Seinfeld saying this. What's the big deal about the Exodus? <laughs> What's the big deal about the Exodus? Why the obsession? What's going on here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was critical to the Jewish story. You know, we were slaves, and then we weren't slaves, and that was the Exodus, and that's a big deal. Sure. But can we, can we move on a little bit? I mean, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. We haven't been in Egypt in a while. I mean, unless you visited the pyramids and uh, camels and whatnot, which is a lovely thing I've heard. But otherwise, like, what, let's, let's just drop it. Let's let it go. What's the Exodus obsession? By the way, many answers have been given to this. Many answers have been given. You know, it's, like I said, the birth of our nation, or it reminds us that God is real and relevant and runs the world, and at any moment, miracles are possible. There's a lot of answers and explanations as to why the Exodus is such an important theme, even in 2021. But I want to share with you another insight. And that is that we're obsessed with the Exodus because at its core, or at our core, we're meant to constantly relive the Exodus experience every single day. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's take a look at text 4a. It says in the Mishnah, Tractate Psachim, which is the tractate all about Passover. It says in every generation, we must view ourselves as if we too left Egypt. In other words, the Exodus is not meant to be seen as a, as a once-upon-a-time event in Amalek Atzaitin. Who knows Yiddish? Let me see my Yiddish, my Yiddish speakers. Yiddish Amalek Atzaitin means the times of uh, yesteryear, once-upon-a-time times. That's not what the Exodus is supposed to be. The mission says, Bechal dar vadar, in every generation, every generation, generation, means every single generation. Chayiv Adam Lira says Atzmi. Every everyone is Chayiv is obligated to perceive to see themselves as if they he or she personally has left Egypt. And in some sources, it's tweaked. Not just every generation, but every day. Every single day, a person has to re-experience, relive the Exodus. It has to be part of our personal narrative. Take a look at this gorgeous text from Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, text 4b. Kabbalistic allegorization. It's, it's, it's got a higher level English here, so stay with me. Kabbalistic alleg allegorization sees in every historical occurrence a symbol of a more intimate and personal drama in which man is involved of a great experience that lies at the very root of one's existential awareness. And so, the story of the Exodus is related not only to a, sorry, to historical events, but to a living reality as a symbolic narrative of human destiny. In reciting the Haggadah, like we do on Passover, that's the book, one is not reminiscing about an ancient past, about people and occurrences enveloped in the mist of the millennia, I love that phrase, but rather is telling a personal story, pouring out one's heart, confessing something intense, passionate, and crucial that happened to oneself. At this level, one is preoccupied not with history, his story, history, but with the living present. Not with others, but with oneself and one's own exciting life. A person must see in the story of the Exodus as in a mirror 
the inward drama of his or her, or her own soul. This is Rabbi Soloveitchik, his wisdom on the meaning, the eternal message and relevance of the Exodus. Now, he doesn't explain what that is, but he's just explaining that there must be a look inside. There must be a way to connect that with their own experience. How am I, how am I leaving Egypt today? To understand what this means. So what we've, let me explain what we've done here. I asked the question about the Exodus, why the obsession? And the answer that we're giving is because we're meant to live it every day. And if you don't say it twice a day, recite it in the Kiddush, have a whole holiday dedicated to it, you might forget that you need to do it. You got to do it every day. It's an ongoing experience. But the question is, what does it mean? Where, where am I leaving? Do I have to like fly to Egypt and leave every day? That's going to uh, get expensive. What, what do I need to do here? The key is in the Hebrew. You see, in English, we call that land that we left Egypt. But in Hebrew, unmute yourself if you can tell me the Hebrew name of the land of enslavement. What was the Hebrew name? Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim. Excellent. Excellent. Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim. It's all about the Hebrew etymology. It's all about the Hebrew. It's the narrowness between the yes. brain and the heart. It's the Meitzar. It's the Meitzar. It's the narrow space. Mitzrayim is Meitzarim. Plural of, it's the Meitzarim. Meitzar is a, is, a, is a narrow strait, a constraint. Meitzarim are constraints, plural. In other words, and it's not just, not only the head and heart, it could be any constraint that we have, any personal limitation that we have, any hesitation, limitation, constraint, that we have, that holds us back from living the life that we know we were destined to live. Anything that holds us back, whether it's external, like someone telling us we can't, or internal, ourselves telling us we can't, that constitutes our personal Egypt that our tradition tells us we must break out of every single day. Bechal dar vadar, in every generation, in every single day. Everyone must pack their bags and leave Egypt. What that means is break out of what holds us back. The question now is, what does that mean? I want to explain this on two levels. I want to explain this on two levels. One more obvious and one a little bit more subtle. So let's go obvious first. Let's talk about the obvious application. We all know that we have stuff that's not so good about our character, our behavior. We have the skeletons in our closet, or maybe not in our closet, right? The skeletons, the, uh, the negativity. Whether it's maybe negative midos, um, um, character traits, maybe negative behavioral patterns, maybe it's missing some things that we know we should be doing. All of these could be our personal Egypt. They would constitute our personal Mitzrayim, Mitzarim, the things that are holding us back from being who we know we ought to be. Right? A person knows uh, that they come home from work and you know, when, they, when they, the kids say this or the wife says that or the husband says that, they get angry, they get, you know, they're tense or whatever and they, and they snap and they say things and they shout and, and they know that it's not good but they, they feel stuck. Okay. So that's their Egypt. Good. That's their Egypt. I'm not good, but okay. So that's their Egypt. So now how do you break out of it? 
How do we break out of it? When we've identified the problem, so what do we do next? So Judaism says there's a three-step process. Three-step process. How to break out of a negative space. Step one, well, we, we just talked about it. Identify the problem. As long as we don't know what the problem is, we can't fix it. Yeah, you go to a doctor. The first thing the doctor does is try to figure out what's wrong. Yeah? You can't start cure. You can't start the healing process unless you diagnose the issue. Yeah, what's, what's the problem? And now we can fix it. If we don't know what the problem is, then we're just shooting in the dark. And the likelihood of getting that done, of correcting that or healing that, you know, what are the odds, right? So step one is identifying the problem. What are the areas that I need to work on? Step two, and this is a very important step. I'm going to give you the mystical term for it. It's called escafia, which means holding ourselves back from engaging in that, ne- let's, let's say it's a negative behavior, holding ourselves back from doing it. So, for example, if we, if we identify, okay, one second. So in my relationship with my children, yeah, person might say, I get angry and I don't want to be that person, that parent that gets angry at my kids. So let me identify under what context, you know, when, when and how is this happening? Let me think about it. Like, when is it? Ah, so it happens when I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm feeling, you know, my, my self-confidence is that whatever it is. I'm just, you know, giving theoreticals, right? So let's say a person identifies, okay, this is the issue. Okay, good, this is the issue. Now I can be sure that when I'm in that context, I can, I can like white knuckle it and try to hold on really strong to not blow up in that moment. Okay, so that's called iskafia. Iskafia means I really want to. I've been, I've been triggered, but I'm still going to hold myself back and not do because I've identified the problem. So now I'm going to hold myself back from falling into that trap again. Okay, fine. That's, that's, that, that's step two. Step one, identify the problem. Step two, hold oneself back. But step three is where the magic happens. Step three is not just identifying the problem, not just withholding myself from the negative behavior. Step three is flipping the energy transforming that energy from negative to positive, channeling the energy, the negative energy, into something more noble, redirect it to something good. So this is called in, in, uh, in Kabbalah, in, in mystical terminology, this is called ishapcha. There's eskafia, which is withholding oneself, and ishapcha, which means transformation. Personal transformation. It means leveraging the negative energy for something positive. It's a redirection. So, for example, there was once a a Hasidic rabbi who said, when you look at a thief, yeah, you could look at a thief and say, ah, thief, terrible, terrible, low life, thief stealing from people, robbing, ah, it's terrible, terrible crime, terrible criminal. This rabbi said, you can learn seven lessons from a thief. Seven lessons from a thief. What are they? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Here we go. Take a look at the next text. Text number five. This is such a beautiful idea. It is possible to utilize all personality traits, including, neg- uh, sorry, including neutral traits, and even those commonly perceived as negative in the service of God. Again, that first line is exactly what we're talking about. You can use Every part of your being, the ones that, the, the traits that are new, not just the holy stuff that you have inside, but the neutral ones, 
and even the negative ones in a holy service, in the service of God. You can flip it. You can flip it. You can redirect it. Even the negative ones you can redirect. For example, the holy Rabbi Meshulam Zusia of Anapol, the of righteous memory, Reb Zusha, derived from a thief a number of methods of serving God. A, he works without fanfare. B, he's willing to take risks. C, the smallest detail is of great importance to him. D, he labors with great diligence. E, he works swiftly. F, he is confident and optimistic. And G, and this is my favorite, if he does not succeed the first time, he tries again and again. Think about it. Think about a thief. Right? A thief is someone, just each one is brilliant. He works without fanfare. I don't need to... Discretion. A thief is discreet, right? If you want to get away with it, you got to be discreet. But imagine if the thief uses the, the, the attribute of discretion when he does a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah not to, not to become famous, not to become on the front page of the newspaper. Discretion, right? Um, I think Jules mentioned about giving tzedakah just you know, quietly, without fanfare, right? It's good with fanfare, without fanfare. But, but imagine, discretion, you can use discretion for a good thing or for a negative thing, but use it for good. This is called eshapcha. You take the same energy that's going into the negative behavior and redirect it. You see, the beauty of this approach is that you're not trying to kill a part of yourself. All you're doing is redirecting its manifestation. Does that make sense? In other words, you're doing something quietly. You're pay- Let's go back to the text. I love that text. Let's go back. Let's look at the other details. You're doing something quietly. You're taking risks. Right? You're paying attention to the detail. You're um, working hard. You're working quickly. You're very confident and optimistic in what you're doing. And you're, um, you're persistent. You do it again and again and again until it works. These are great qualities. These are great personal qualities. These are not bad things. These are good things. Now, hold on one second. Time out. If you're using it to steal, it's a bad thing. But not the traits. The application is bad. The application needs to change. But not who you are. That's the... I'm getting very excited about this. In other words, a thief need not change the entirety of who he or she is. It's just how it expresses itself. Does that make sense? It's a mind-blowing concept. You think, oh, the thief, oh, that's it, traif. That means like, not kosher, out, the whole thing. Take it easy, take it easy. The thief is like right there, right there on the cusp of greatness. All you need to do is switch. The switch is from here to there. That's it. Just hit the toggle. Instead of directing all these energies toward taking something of someone else's, have it directed toward doing something of benefit to the other. And boom, discreet, discretion, detail-oriented. It's all great quality traits. So here's the point. When it comes to breaking out of Egypt, yeah, Exodus, every day, Exodus, 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 because we're trying to drill in our brains that there's work to do. For us, inside, internal work, we got to get out of Egypt. How do you get out of Egypt? Number one, no. Let me see if I can do this in Old English. Know thou, thy, know thy, know thy Egypt. Know what your Egypt is. Identify your Egypt, number one. Number two, in the case of the thief, stop stealing. But number three, and this is the most important step, redirect the energies. Identify the energy, the pure energy, not, the, not where it's going, but what it is. We, 
things happen so fast inside. Our brain, our heart, our whole being, it happens so fast that we don't pay attention to the process. There's a process. There are qualities that are good that are being utilized for, for, for not good purposes. If we can separate the two, we can redirect it for the good. So anyway, that's breaking out of Egypt. That's what it means. So Judaism teaches that, yeah, it's entirely possible to break out of your Egypt because you are not trafe. You are not unholy. The behavior might be, but you are, not, you are very holy. All you need to do is redirect. It's not, that, it's not as dramatic as it sounds. Just redirect. That's all what I call before the obvious. I don't think I use the word obvious. That is the, the um, uh, we'll say obvious. That is the more obvious form of the exit, personal exodus, the daily exodus. Every day, what can I, what, what, what do I need to, to correct? But there's a subtle form. I told you before, there's a second form of exodus, a much more subtle personal form of the exodus that we're going to speak about in a moment. But first... Once again, let me ask you to open up the mics. Let's check, let me check in. Questions, comments on what we've developed now so far about exodus and change and character improvement and development. Jump in. It just made me think about your recent discussion that prayer is really for ourselves and that this is, a, is an example. If every day we're, pray, we're praying about the exodus, yeah. we're helping ourselves. It's a reminder. It's a reminder. And by the way, you're, you're, you mentioned prayer, and if you mentioned it, let, let me elaborate on that a, a drop so everyone knows what you're talking about. Um, we think of prayer as God wants to hear us, as if God has a low self-esteem, and every time we say, God, you're the best. Look what you've made. I love you, God. God's like, oh, thank God. Thank God. Well, it would be awkward if God said that. But, you know, wow, I feel so good now about myself. That's not what's going on. God doesn't need our prayers. We need, our, we need the prayers. You know what we say when we pray? It's good also to know what we say. Not just, it's not just a bunch of words on a page. It's actually saying something. But when we know what we're saying, it's, it's, it's a game changer. It's drilling into our consciousness that God's in control, that we live in a beautiful world, that we have a mission. I mean, all, all the wonderful themes. We need to hear this. It's like, I once heard the story from the rabbi that brought the... Okay, there was a rabbi in the 70s, 60s or 70s, that brought a group of college students to the Rebbe, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, for like a weekend, and, and then there was a private meeting with this group of students. And, um, at the, and they, these weren't religious, uh, you know, college students, uh, college students, and um, Jewish kids, but... And one of them asked, you know, Rabbi, I, I don't... I'm just not connecting with this whole idea of do a mitzvah for God. You know, God wants me to do this, that, the other. Does, doesn't do it for me. God wants. Let him figure it out. Like, what is so the Rebbe said to him the following. And I heard this from the rabbi that brought this group to the Rebbe. So he was there. So this is what the Rebbe said. Sometimes when you feed a child, the child doesn't want to eat. Yeah, you ever had this experience? You're feeding a baby and the, baby, the child doesn't want to eat. So what do you say? Take a spoon, eat one for mom, and here's one for dad, and here's one for Bubby, and here's one for Zaidi, and here's one for Tante, Tante Ruchel, and here's one for, you know, Mumesara, whatever it is. You start making up names. Yeah? A spoon for every member of the family. Ah, oh, the kid over, ah, a spoon for dad. Ah, for sure, I'll eat that one. Rebbe says, so who's getting the nutrition? Who's eating the food? 
Mom, dad, Bubby, Zadie, Tanta Soda. Who's, who's getting, Rachel, whatever I said before. Who's getting the food? The child. It's just that you're telling the child, yeah, do it for this, that, or the other. You say, do a mitzvah for God. It's a, the mitzvahs are for ourselves. Not in a selfish way. They improve. They make us more of a mensch. Right? Prayer makes us, helps imp- self-improve ourselves. Studying Torah makes us more refined and wiser, hopefully, in the process. Yeah. So yes, also there's a mitzvah component for God, but it's, God wants it for us. The Talmud says, the Torah was given for one purpose, to refine the human being, to refine the human condition, to make us more of a mensch. Anyway, circling back to the point over here. The Exodus is so important. It's a, it's a timeless theme because we're always working with our personal challenges. And the goal is to break out, to correct what we need to correct and break out of being stuck under the grips of the negative behavior. That's the more obvious application. It's time now to go more subtle. And this is what I would call a deeper understanding of the Jewish call to break out of the status quo. It's not just to break out and get rid of the negative character traits that we have, the bad habits, but it's even to break out of the good stuff that we're doing. The exodus means that you have to break out not just of the bad stuff, but even the good stuff, even the good stuff. It's not just when we're messing up. It's not just when we're not behaving that we need to grow. Even when we're behaving, even when we're doing the right thing, we still need to grow then also. This idea is captured so powerfully, so powerfully, in a Talmudic statement. Take a look at this one. Take a look at this Talmudic statement, a Talmudic dialogue. This is about, well, you'll see, you'll see right now. Text 6a, Trate Chagiga. Barhehe, that was his name, that was his nickname. Barhehe asked of Hillel, you guys know Hillel, right? Hillel, great Hillel. The verse says in Malachi, you will discern, you God will discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Is that not redundant? Is not the righteous person one who serves God and the wicked person one who does not serve him? Right? It says righteous and wicked and the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve him. It's the same thing twice. Hill replied, no. Both the individuals referenced in this verse, the one who serves and the one who does not serve, are holy, righteous individuals. In other words, the second half of the verse is talking about all tzaddikim. The first half talks about the difference between righteous and wicked. But then in the second half, this part, it's all righteous. Nevertheless, one who reviews his studies only 100 times, listen to this, one who reviews his studies only 100 times is referred to as one who does not serve God because he cannot be compared to the one who reviews his studies 101 times. Barhei asked, one second, because the person reviews his studies one less time, he's considered one who does not serve God? What? You study 100, you review the idea of Torah 100 times, no, you didn't serve God. You do it 101 times, one more time, now you serve God? What does that even mean? So Hill says, yes, exactly so. Indeed, that is so. Consider, by way of analogy, the market prices for donkey drivers in a time before Uber. Can you imagine? 
they had donkey drivers that you would hire. Yeah. To hire a donkey driver to travel 10 parasa, the cost is one zus. Whereas for 11 parasa, just one more parasa, the charge is double two zus. Right? 10 times the amount for one extra parsa. That's what he answers. Let's understand the dialogue here because, again, this is a curious tale of the Talmud. What is happening here? What's the serving God, not serving God, 100 times, 101 times, the donkey, rent the donkey prices? What in the world is going on? Let me explain it, and hopefully I can explain it very simply. Back in the days of the Talmud, there wasn't the written Torah. Actually, this probably took place in the era of the Mishnah. It's recorded in the Talmud, but it probably happened before the Talmud was penned, even before the Mishnah was penned. So in those times, the oral Torah was committed to memory. That's the whole Torah resided, I mean, other than the written Torah, but all the details resided in the memory of, of scholars and their students. So how did you make sure that you got it right, that you got it down pat? Well, the custom was they would study 100 times. 100 times, that's a lot of study. It's a lot of, re- for each one, each one law, they would study, re- they would review it 100 times. That's incredible. That would entail an incredible amount of effort. You and I would say, wow, that's like a lot of effort. But in those days, it was the norm. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It didn't require any superhuman effort. It's what they did. So Hill says, if you can study, review your studies 101 times, not 100 times, but 101. Now you're doing something remarkable. 100 times is the norm. 101, that's spectacular. That means you're pushing, you're pushing your own comfort zone. You're pushing against the contours of what you are typically comfortable with. You're doing it not because that's the normal. You're doing it because whatever. Whatever the rationale, whatever the the motivation is, you're going beyond the norm, beyond your comfort. And that's something special. That's something honorable. That's breaking out of your own Egypt. You see, Egypt can exist in the realm of the negative. You've got to break out of Egypt because evil is bad. Or evil can exist in the positive. In the status quo of positivity. In the banality of good. In the, ordina- in, the, in the ordinary nature of the good that we do. It's ordinary, it's good and ordinary, and we do it every day. And it's good, but it's Egypt. Why is it Egypt? Not because it's bad. It's Egypt because it's a limitation. We've grown accustomed to it. And that's our status quo. And that's what we're used to. And we're not comfortable going beyond that. That's exactly why we ought to. That's exactly why it brings the example of the donkey drivers. They would charge one zuz, it was a coin, one zuz, for 10 parasa. That was an amount of uh, distance, a measure of distance. 10 parasa for one zuz. You want to go one more parasa, 11 parasa? Not, not double it. One more from 10 to 11. They double the price. Because the donkeys weren't used to it and the drivers weren't used to it. It was outside the zone. Outside the comfort zone. You want to go within the 10 parasa radius? There's set price. You want to go outside? All bets are off. You want me to go outside the, the 10 parasa cutoff? Oh, it's crazy. That's crazy, reckless. Double, doubling your price, doubling your cost. That's the way it is. It's a powerful idea here. Let me share with you 
what it says in Tanya, the Bible of Chabad Hasidic philosophy about this. It was what I just said, I got it from here. It was standard in that era for scholars to review each lesson 100 times. The Talmud compares the difference between one who reviews 100 and 101 times to the difference in rates at the donkey driver market. While the price for a 10 parasa hire was one zuz, an 11 parasa hire cost two zuz because it exceeded the standard. That's it, it exceeded the standard. The 101st review which is more than the student's routine, is the equivalent of the previous 100 reviews combined. In fact, it surpasses them. For by its virtue alone, the student is considered one who serves God. It's someone who dares to defy themselves and their comfort zone to study God's Torah one more time. Why? Because it's God's Torah and I love it. So this is someone who's serving God, someone who's going beyond their comfort zone even within the realm of positivity. This opens up, and I hope this is making sense, this opens up a whole new vista of awareness, a whole new understanding, a whole new perspective on personal growth, on the exodus, the meaning of the exodus. It's not just getting rid of the bad stuff. It's not just getting out of, you know, the status quo of negativity. It's about breaking free of any natural, self-imposed limitations, even the good ones, even the ones that are associated with good behaviors. So for example, give me an example. You have a good husband. Good husband. He does everything he needs to do. Whatever his wife asks of him, he does. And that's great. But when he goes above and beyond and gives extra time, extra devotion, whatever that means, I'm being vague, right? whatever that means, that really demonstrates his love, right? There's the status quo, there's what's comfortable, but if you go outside of that, oh, now I know you love me, yeah? If you get the standard order that you know that I like, etc., okay, so I know, I, 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 I know you love me and I know you know what I like. But if you put in extra effort to get me something unexpected, oh, now I know that you're thinking about me. Now I know it's not just routine. So that's the idea of the exodus. Exodus means... Number one, get rid of bad stuff. But number two, number two, go beyond our own comfort zones, our own limitations within the realm of positivity. Because when we break out of those limitations, it shows that we're dedicated to something greater than ourselves. Because if it was just about us, we're comfortable with that. When we break out of that, it means that there's something else that we're thinking about, something beyond just ourselves. Let me check in. Does this make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay. Let's go further. One of the great demonstrations of breaking out of the limitations of positivity, this positive personal exodus, is when a person goes completely out of their comfort zone for another. Let me give you an example. It's not just like extra time or extra dedication, but something completely, they do something completely unnatural for the other or for, you know, for, for the good. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say the, the example I gave before about the husband, right? The good husband. So this husband, let's say, doesn't just show his unbounded love by putting in extra time and extra effort in whatever he's doing. But he even does things that don't come naturally to him. Things that don't come easy to him, he does 
just for his wife. For, so, for example, he'll cook dinner. He'll put in the effort to cook dinner, even though he feels like a klutz in the kitchen, right? If he can do that, then you know that's true love, right? Then you know that in this moment he's not thinking about himself. He's willing to do something that goes totally against what he's good at or what he's, what he's proficient in, and he does it just to benefit the other. Now you know that's true love. Now you know that's true dedication. That's true personal freedom. That's true personal exodus. It's getting rid of the personal preferences. It's disregarding the personal likes and dislikes to do what needs to be done even in a way that goes beyond one's own natural proclivity. With this, we can go back to our original story. Let's go all the way back. Let's rewind like three or four steps back to the story with Rabbi Hanina and Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi is on his deathbed. Rabbi Hanina comes in. There's a bit of a dialogue. Second half of the conversation. Rabbi Hanina says, what do you think? Do I have a share in the world to come? And we asked before, what do you mean? Share in the world to come. Of course you have a share in the world to come. That was our question. You study Torah. You're teaching Torah. Not so fast. Not so fast. We have now an insight that can illuminate a new perspective on this. You see, of course Rabbi Hanina knew that he was dedicated to Torah, that he was devoted to Torah, that he was teaching Torah by pain of death. He was putting his own life at risk. Of course he knew that. But he feared this. Perhaps it was his nature. Perhaps his nature was to be an academic, to be studious, Maybe his entire experience of Torah study and Torah teaching was simply because that's how he was wired. In other words, how does he know that he's serving God? How does he know that he's really going beyond himself to serve God as opposed to just doing what comes naturally? Maybe, and this is what his fear was, maybe all of these years I've been studying Torah and teaching Torah because... I'm an academic. Maybe it's just nature. Let's take a look at text 8a. There are certain people who are naturally cerebral and gravitate toward intellectual inquiry. inquiry. Their minds and hearts are constantly drawn to study and they take immense pleasure in delving into all sorts of wisdom. This was demonstrated by some of the ancient philosophers who were members of the noble class and lacked none of the world's pleasures. Yet they abandoned all material delights and immersed themselves in the study of the sciences. And the delight they took in their studies was on par with the bliss that others gain from engaging in sensory pleasures. And was, they loved academics, academic pursuits as much as people love sushi and steak. This phenomenon was unrelated to any theology but resulted from their inborn nature. It wasn't, it wasn't a spiritual activity. It was just who they were. Others, however, by nature, have no such desire. Even if they are wise and knowledgeable, they take no pleasure in even a moment of abstract contemplation. So this is the author of the founder of Chabad, the author of Tanya that we just read before in a different book called Torah R. And he writes over there different natures. Some people are more cerebral, some people are more intellectual, some people are more academic, they love studying, they love philosophizing, that's what they love. They love it like uh, somebody else loves food. They love this. 
So when they do it, they do it because they love it. They do it out of habit. They do it because, out of comfort. Other people don't, but the people that love it, love it. Other people don't like academia. Don't, they don't like philosophical discussion. You bring up philosophy and they, they tune out immediately. They walk away. It's like, I'm going to go back to the buffet. Like, what do you want from me? I'm not, I'm not a philosopher. But some people love philosophy. Rabbi Chenin ben Trajan was concerned. And he worried about himself. Maybe he's just a philosopher. He's an academic. So, so the Romans say, you can't study, you can't teach anymore. I'm a teacher, so I teach. Is he really serving God? Is it about God or about himself? You understand the question? Rabbi Chinim and Trajan didn't know if when he studied Torah it was about God at all, if it was just about his own intellectual pursuits. Maybe this whole time it's just me because I'm an academic. And that's, and he got really concerned. He got really concerned. Maybe all these years it was never about God. To which Rabbi Yossi replied with a question. Tell me another mitzvah that you've done. Give me something. I know you're studying Torah, teaching Torah, even when the Romans have forbade it, but you're right. Maybe that's just who you are. How do we know you're serving God? Maybe that's your 100. That's your comfort zone. You love academia, so you love academics, so that's what you do. Give me another mitzvah. What have you done? To that, he says, well, one time I had the money. I had two wallets, two purses. Yeah, one with the tzedakah money, the charity money, and one with my own personal money for my own personal holiday meal, a Purim feast. And I ended up giving the charity for my own money, but I didn't reimburse myself. I just... So Rabbi says to him, if that's the case, you're all set. Why? What happened? Let me explain what's going on. This is not my own commentary. This is brought down in sources, which I'll share with you in a moment, but let me tell it to you first outside, and then we'll see it inside. There's a correlation between being an academic and being a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a little bit more, um, not introspective, less outgoing. What's the word for less outgoing? Introvert? More, more introverted. Yeah, a little bit more introverted. Right? Academics, cerebral, a little bit more introverted. Typically someone, typically, again, your, your mileage may vary, you get, but typically, right? That academic, that, that big brain is usually more, more introverted. And then you have someone who's, you know, very um, extroverted, yeah, very extroverted, and yeah, maybe they're not spending hours poring over a text because it's more they're more into, into the socializing and that sort of thing. And that translates down to how we spend. You know, if we're more, um, you know, cerebral and more academic and more introverted, we're likely to spend less to be more, more, more precise about our money. Someone who's more extroverted, more, you know, more out there, may be a little bit more generous. And I think about giving, yeah, give, whatever, give, take, it's all good. So when Rabbi Hanina told the story about how he gave the money and he generously ended up giving his own money instead of taking it back from the charity and reimbursing himself, he gave it. Rabbi Yossi said to Rabbi Hanina, in, in between the lines, wait a second. If that's who you are, if you're a generous person, that means by nature you're not an academic. 
Again, you're not, you're not necessarily the most, the most academically focused individual, in which case all your Torah study is the product of breaking your own character, is the product of hard work. In other words, if you were very, you know, methodical and, and paid yourself back from the money that would fit in with the model of, acad of, ac of academia. But the fact that you were generous with your money means that by nature, maybe you're not going to spend hours and hours and hours over a text. So the fact that you did spend hours over text studying and teaching means that you really served God. You broke your nature. Your nature was extroverted and you engaged in more introverted behavior to study Torah and to teach Torah for God. Now, now I see that you really, you really served God because serving God means that you don't stick with your own personality. It's like the husband, again, not only does whatever, you know, the normal stuff, but even does something that he's not so good at even something that, uh, that he's a bit of a klutz at for the other, for his, for the, for, because of the, the love that he has for his wife. It's about breaking out of your comfort zone to do something that goes beyond your own nature. Then we know that you're committed. Then we know that you're really in. That's the 101st time. That's the cooking the dinner when you're not good at it. And that's the idea of Rabbi Hanina's teaching Torah, even though he was more of a free-spirited, generous nature fellow. Now, let me show this to you and say that's outside. Let's look at it inside, and maybe it'll help concretize this idea. Maybe it'll crystallize what I'm trying to say. This is going to be text 8c. Rabbi Yossi said that the only way to determine Rabbi Hanina's natural disposition is by analyzing his deeds. That's why he said, what other mitzvahs do you have? What other things have you done? Rabbi Hanina responded by relating the story of the Purim purse that was switched with the, chari with, with the charity purse. This to Rabbi Yossi, to the other rabbi, was an indication that Rabbi Hanina was naturally generous and liberal with his monies. In other words, he was his own money. He, was, he said, no problem. I, I gave it away. It's, it's all good. He was naturally generous and liberal. He didn't take it back. Right? He wasn't accounting every cent. He was generous. He thus concluded that Rabbi Hanina's devotion to Torah study, to the point of self-sacrifice, was not a result of a natural proclivity towards studiousness. Because the studious personality type is associated with more frugality. That is the association. Again, your mileage may vary. It's not a, it's not a hard and fast rule. But that's the general. Hi. Hold on one second. That is the general distinction um, that is drawn in the sources. So therefore, the fact that he was generous and liberal with his money and still was a studious fellow means... Right, that he broke his, uh, his, his nature. Because again, the studious personality type is associated with frugality. As soon, let's, let's get to the payoff here. As soon as Rabbi Yossi understood that Rabbi Hanina's sacrifice for the sake of Torah was entirely due to his devotion to God and not due to his natural predisposition, he exclaimed, may, my, may, my, may your portion be my portion. That's what he says. In other words, when Rabbi Yossi understands who Rabbi Hanina was, his persona, he says, look, you were not someone you are not someone who naturally is more introverted and, and, and careful and studious and that sort of thing. No, you're more generous by nature. You're more liberal by nature. And you're still studious. That means that you're doing it for God. That means you're teaching Torah for God, not because it's your own personal way, but you're doing it because that's the right thing, because God wants you to do that. 
Now that's honorable. That's 101 time. That's breaking out of your own Egypt. That's true dedication. And that's what I want for myself. May your portion be my portion, Rabbi Yossi says. This, and I hope it's a little bit nuanced there, and there's a lot of there's assumptions that we're making in this understanding. The assumption is that generosity is connected with academia, right? That's a big, that's a big, right? That's a big assumption. And again, it's not a hard and fast rule, but this is one way of explaining the back and forth. Rabbi Chenino was concerned that his learning and his teaching was just natural. And he, the rabbi said, well, tell me another story about yourself. He talks about generously giving. He says, oh, if you're generously giving, then it seems like you had to work on yourself to be so dedicated to Torah study and Torah teaching. In which case, you worked on yourself for God, in which case you're dedicated to God, in which case, may your portion be my portion. The moral of the story. The moral of the story is, number one, if we have negative you know, traits and, and, and behaviors, let's, let's, let's exit us out of them, number one. But number two, the more subtle point is, Sometimes it's not enough to do the right thing. What we need to do from an exodus perspective is to go beyond what's just right, to go beyond what's just required, and to really pour our heart and soul into it, to do it because we really care about it, not because that's the, the easy way out. To be passionate about what we do for good, not just to do it a hundred times, but a hundred and one times. And this applies to every area of our spiritual experience. So number one, number one, it applies to prayer. Instead of just praying like a robot without feeling, right? Sometimes it feels like that's we're just reading words on a page. This is the page that somebody else wrote 2,000 years ago. Let's pray with passion. Don't pray 100 times. I don't mean literally, right? Don't pray in the model of 100 times because that's the natural thing to do. Pray 101 times. Pray in a way where there's passion, where you're going beyond the norm. You're injecting yourself and investing yourself with passion. You're really communicating with God. Imagine something. You have an opportunity to speak in front of God. What would you say? Uh, done? Yeah? If, you had, if God was here, that's what you would say? Come on. You, you would mean it. You would feel it. So let's feel it. Not a hundred times, a hundred and one times. That's going to be the theme, by the way. I'm going to keep on saying this. 100 or 101? 100 means, eh, you passed. 101, flying colors. Right? 100 is basic. 101 is big. You can pray 100 or 101, go 101. Number two, when you study Torah, invest yourself in the experience. Not just 100 times. Again, not literally, but metaphorically. But 101 times. Don't be satisfied with just getting it superficially. Delve into it. Throw yourself in. Ask more questions. Challenge your own understandings and predispositions. Really understand it. Write a pilpul. Write an analysis on a, on a concept that you've been studying. Yeah? Write your own commentaries. Like challenge yourself when it comes to Torah study. And when it comes to a mitzvah, finally, the three pillars, right? Prayer, Torah study, and mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, let's not do it just to satisfy the obligation Let's not be satisfied with just doing the minimum. Let's always look to make the mitzvah more beautiful. Buy a beautiful pair of tefillin, a beautiful, build a beautiful sukkah, 
Eat the handmade matzah, not just the machine-made. A pair of beautiful candlesticks for Shabbat candles. Make your mitzvah 101, not just 100. 100, you pass the test. 101, oh, it's a different experience. You know when somebody's in a relationship, when someone's 100-ing you or 101-ing you. Right? It feels different. 100 is like, uh, 101, oh, they care. Oh, they care. They're thinking about me. I got it. Yeah? You get a Hanukkah gift. You get a 100 Hanukkah gift or 101 Hanukkah? 100 Hanukkah gift is, yeah, the usual. 101, they really thought about me. They really care. 101 is that extra oomph. The message for us is when it comes to the important things in life, let's break out of Egypt. Let's break out of the limitations. Break out of the status quo. Break out, break out of what's easy to do what is beyond easy. To really love and be dedicated to what's out there. Whether it's to our loved ones, to Hashem, to God, in prayer, in Torah study, and in mitzvah observance. Each one of us has the ability to go beyond, to break out of our Egypt, even in good things, to be great. Not just good, but great. <coughs> I want to conclude with one more story. I know we're past the time, but please indulge me for another minute or two. One more story. This is our final story. <coughs> Tractate Megillah. Rabbah sent Abaye to Mari Barmar, to Mari Barmar, to deliver Purim gifts on his behalf. Again, Rabbah, he was a rabbi, he sent Abaye, another rabbi, to a third rabbi, Mari Barmar, to deliver Purim gifts on his behalf. So Abaye was the messenger. Abaya said of this incident, when I left Rabba's, ha- Rabba's home, I was already full. When I arrived at Mari Barmar's home, they put before me 60 plates with 60 types of cooked foods. I ate 60 pieces, one from each plate. The last dish was pot roast. After consuming it, I wanted to eat the plate. That's how good it was. I wanted to eat the plate. Abaya then said, this illustrates the common proverb, a poor person knows not that he's hungry. Alternatively, it bears out the common saying, there is always room for sweets. Even after the pot roast, still want dessert. So now what we're thinking is, okay, weird story, very bizarre, curious tell the Talmud. Abaya apparently was a, a grace a fresher. He, he liked to eat, as they say. He liked to eat. Okay, so that's the story. That's, that's what it is. No. We're going to conclude with this. This is the Chassam Sofer. He explains... This story is talking about not food, but Torah study. As you might have guessed, it's talking about Torah study. Here we go. When I left Rabbah's home, I was already full. When Abayah left the home of his teacher, Rabbah, he was sated with Torah knowledge. And he felt that he was filled to capacity. But then, when he arrived at Mari Mar's home, they put before me 60 plates with 60 types of cooked foods. The Torah discussion that ensued included concepts from each of the 60 tractates of the Talmud. So he had Torah study before, but then he studied more Torah. 60 tractates of Torah, of Talmud. And I ate 60 pieces, one from each plate. Mari introduced Abayah to a novel concept, a new idea, Chidush, in each of the 60 tractates of Talmud. The last dish was pot roast. It so happened that the last tractate they discussed was Psachim, which contains the laws of Passover and the, and, and the roasted Paschal lamb. They discussed whether the Paschal sacrifice 
which the Torah specifies must be roasted on fire, may be prepared as a pot roast. Can, can you do pot roast or it has to be fire without a pot? They discuss that. I wanted to eat the plate. Abaya did not want to end the discussion before completing the entire tractate. He wanted the whole thing. It was Purim, 30 days before Passover, the appropriate time to begin studying the laws of Passover. This illustrates the common proverb, a poor, a poor person knows not that he's hungry. Alternatively, it bears out the common saying, there's always room for sweets. Some people feel sated with Torah knowledge because they lack wisdom and delude themselves into thinking that they know it all. In other words, I don't need to study Torah, I know everything. Others feel that because they are indeed knowledgeable, sorry, others feel sated because they are indeed knowledgeable. So some don't know, so they feel, they feel full. Some know, but they still feel full. Nevertheless, due to Torah's endless depth, it is always possible to uncover more wisdom therein. Some suffer from a combination of both of these mistakes, of mistaken perspectives. They, the, these two attitudes are alluded to by the, by the saying, a poor person knows not that he's hungry. In other words, if you never study Torah, you don't know what you're missing, and there's always room for sweets, even if you study Torah and you think you know it all, there's always more. And that's how I want to end the course. Abaya teaches us that when you sit down to a good meal, yeah, and you're enjoying the food, you always want more. I hope this course had, has, wetted, has wet your appetite for good food, i.e. good Torah study, good Talmud study, engaging discussion, engage, engaging analysis. And I hope that this will be the beginning of many more desserts together, many more opportunities to study Torah together. Let's not limit our collective feast of Torah study to these three sessions or previous sessions. Let's commit to, con to continue to connect with each other, to study Torah, and to be inspired because whatever we've learned is just the tip of the iceberg. We've only scratched the surface of the depths of Torah. With this, I want to thank you for joining me and encourage you to continue to study together. We're starting a course, a Jewish positive response to anti-Semitism. There's so much negativity out there. A positive and proud response to anti-Semitism. Four-part series begins next week, Tuesday night on Zoom, Thursday afternoon in person with lunch. You can choose whichever you prefer. You can mix and match. Please join us in townjewishacademy.org. That's our website, slash anti-Semitism, or just go to the homepage and click on it. We have other opportunities for study. We have a new course for women starting in a few weeks. We have a book club, and we have some exciting announcements. Stay tuned. In the next few days, you will see some really exciting announcements about new courses, including one that I've been planning for years now called the Kabbalah of the Matrix. Yes, you heard it correct, the Kabbalah of the Matrix, launching in December. Stay tuned for more details about that and other upcoming opportunities to study. So thank you very much for joining. And uh, it should be with, with, uh, with blessing and continued study. I'm here for a few more minutes. If you want to ask questions, I'm here to, to open, open mic, open forum, ask away. Questions, comments? No, but just this was a great lesson. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Hey. Always great to study hey. together. It's good to have the boys together. Yes, hey, cousin. <laughs> That's what I mean. The cousins <laughs> together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fred, jump in. You, you're, you're responsible for bringing us together. Baruch Hashem, we should continue learning. Jay, Jay, you're in trouble. You're the re you're, it's all your fault in a good way. Fred. Fred. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, see you next week, guys. Tuesday night or Thursday in person, and the, the, the study continues. 
Have a good night. Enjoy the dessert, and let's keep on studying. All right, take care. Lila Tov, lots of blessings.